What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. I'm Ben. As always, we're joined by our producer, Noel Brown. I'm not going to give Noel a nickname for this show. I don't know if we should. Really? I don't know, Scott, because, well, let me know what you think here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, This show is, you've heard the phrase, the good, bad, and the ugly. This show is about two-thirds of the things on that list. (laughs) That's a good good point to make. I guess uh, maybe we shouldn't give him a nickname. It might be in some way uh, taken the wrong way, I I suppose. Negative. Yeah, negative. And you'll see these lists that we're talking about today. I mean, you obviously know the the title of today's show, but... Uh these lists, these these uh, these black sheep lists, I guess, all over the, all over the place with a bunch of different um, makes and models, you know, attached to them. So, um, one thing that I would like to say as we as we get into this, and before we really get into our list today, the one we selected to kind of follow through, and then we've got some more to add as well. But one thing I'd like to do before we get into that is say, I, I completely understand. Don't write in angry. I completely understand <laughs> how some people feel about the vehicles that are on this list. Um, because there are a few that I question as well. I don't think that they belong on this list. And that's the case with every list we do, unless it's something that's, you know, just strictly by the numbers. But when right. you say, you know, it's a fun car for under 30,000, some people say that's not a fun car. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't meet the criteria. When you say that these are em- embarrassing vehicles from manufacturers that are, you know, otherwise respectable in some way, mm-hmm. you know, they, they produce good product, but this, there's this one model that d- didn't quite fit with everything else. Someone is going to be outraged over that. Someone's going to oh, yeah. be upset, you know, angry. Yeah. And then uh, additionally, you know, everybody, here's the thing. Opinions know no bounds. So everybody's going to have their baby car at some point, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got to defend it. I get it. But also, I I may go a little further than you with this, Scott. Also, there there's more than one list of this type. And there are several repeat offenders. That's true. Yeah, they, there are many that will appear on mm-hmm. every list, mm-hmm. and then others that will only appear on some lists. So uh, you got to you know, pay attention to that mix as well when you're going through these. But uh, I think the one that we've chosen is pretty good. Oh, I mean, this is great. And this came. Uh, this comes to us from Car and Driver, and this is something that you brought to the table. Yeah, I did. And you know, it makes these interesting lists really to me is that they have 
individual writers pick different. They have them choose their own automotive black sheep, like maybe their their pet peeve vehicle from a manufacturer and write about that. And they have you know, a funny way of doing it. And I don't know if it's just car and driver or if it's other lists as well. I, I looked at a few but didn't really, you know, investigate them as much as this one. But mm-hmm. uh, there's some there's some pretty funny humor in here. It's biting humor, of course. Yes. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll read some of the, the funnier moments throughout. And as I, like I said, I've got my own list of um, – Cars that I consider automotive black sheep and mm-hmm. uh, maybe a, a new way to look at it too, kind of a twist on the idea and see if you agree when we get to that. Sounds good. Let's, uh, let's dive in. So the very first, uh, character on our list, or should I say offender, uh, comes from Jaguar. Yeah, the X type. And you got to remember that at the time, Jaguar was owned by Ford. So, uh, you know, when they, when they start looking around for a, a new vehicle to produce, you know, something that, that meets a certain criteria, something that they, that they need, they're gonna, they're gonna look for what they already have available and, and modify mm-hmm. that in a way, right? And that was the idea behind, uh, the X-Type at, at the time. They, they took the European Ford Mondeo, which was the US version of, or I'm sorry, the, the, um, European version of what we call the Contour here in the United States. And, What's strange is that, you know, it was a front-wheel drive, and it was kind of an unlikely choice for Jaguar, but they they decided that they were going to add an all-wheel drive system to this thing, um, a Ford Duratec V6 V6 engine, and... um, the problem was it ended up looking an awful lot like the <laughs> like the Ford Mondeo or, or the uh, Contour. And if you're spending Jaguar money, you don't want to drive off in a Mondeo. Well, and the, and the thing is, you that's what you were driving off in, right. really. I mean, outside of a couple of appearance things. Now, of course, you know, all-wheel drive, that's different. But, um, sure. Um the uh the, the interior though they said it was plasticky it had some you know some wood veneer that they kind of placed here and there that helped it a little bit and some leather maybe uh but sales in the first year were actually pretty good in 2002 there were 33,018 of those sold and that's just to put that in perspective you know in 2002 that was twice what the brand sold in the United States in 2014 altogether but those sales numbers didn't last for very long and pretty soon they dropped off quickly and of course you know there was a um it was an expensive vehicle as you mentioned before right well jaguar is a luxury brand and so they knew that that what's the best way to say it scott uh, approachable luxury or entry level <laughs> luxury cars they knew that if they could nail the formula on that they could up their sales but what happened, to be completely candid, is that a lot of people felt it was kind of cheap. Yeah. yeah. As, in terms of quality. Well, I mean, it just didn't have the, uh, um, the appearance of the old Jaguars, the elegance, maybe the old Jaguars mm-hmm. didn't have this, the style of them. Um, it wasn't a rear drive, uh, you know, um, um, powerful machine like they were expecting. You know, this is something, and maybe, maybe it had some power. It wasn't, uh, wasn't completely underpowered, you know, with the, with the V6, but, um, again, all wheel drive. It's just something brand new for Jaguar and the, the outward appearance of it just didn't match what they were charging for, really. That's the thing, because if you just look at the vehicle itself, it's not bad. It's not a terrible car. No, not really. Not, not really. Not really. And you know, the old joke about Jaguars prior to this, prior to the Ford ownership was that you'd have to buy two, you know, so you could have, you could trade them in and out of the shop. So when one's been repaired, <laughs> you get another one to drive and then you just swap the two. Like that old Harley Davidson. Yeah. And I too. think, I think that, you know, to some extent when Ford took over ownership of Jaguar for that time, um, it, it changed, you know, that changed their reputation a bit. They had a little bit more reliability under their belt, you know, at that point. So, yeah. um, 
pros and cons, I guess, but, uh, you know, <laughs> this one didn't turn out so well for Jaguar, really, or Ford, really. <laughs> and um, speaking of things that didn't turn out so well. Oh, yeah, this one. And this is one that you occasionally, we don't see a whole lot of them here on the road, but we occasionally see them here in Atlanta. Um, uh-huh. And it's it's I mean, definitely a, a leftover because uh, these were introduced in 1995, and we're talking about the BMW 318Ti. And this is the uh, the hatchback version. Yeah, it was uh, introduced as a 1995 model, and here's what BMW was attempting to do. They wanted to bring in customers who felt like they were being left behind as the 3 Series, as they got priced out of the 3 Series. And initially, this had a base price of... Just under twenty grand, nineteen thousand nine hundred. Yeah, which placed it what like five thousand below what the as you said the, the three series the three eighteen i sedan mm-hmm. was priced at somewhere around I'm going to bought like twenty five thousand dollars. Right, right. So they were trying to get it just under twenty thousand dollars, and what they ended up doing was uh, was creating this vehicle that um, it, it was laughed at. Really, I mean, a lot of people didn't like. It. Now, there's some people that that really liked this because they were able to afford a brand new BMW. For 1999, the problem was, you know, the purists, the people that were excited about the brand that you yeah. know, it's a driver's car, uh, they did not like this, uh, as they called it, an awkward bobtail hatchback. Right. The hatchback was really the deal breaker for a lot of folks. <laughs> uh, that's one of the things that they note is that it looks kind of like a compromise. And it was a compromise, you know, power-wise as well, because the only engine that you could get in this thing was a 1.8-liter four-cylinder engine that was rated at 138 horsepower. Um, it came with either a five-speed manual or a four-speed automatic. Had tiny little 15-inch wheels, but you got to remember the time. That wasn't terrible back then. That was, right. that was relatively standard. Um, but they had skinny tires, and later they offered something that was like an optional sports package, which had 16-inch wheels and, and wider, you know, fatter tires, 16-inch wheels. Um, and I guess that that vehicle was a decent handling vehicle because it was uh, it finished second in Car and Driver's 1997 battle. Um, of the best handling cars under thirty thousand dollars, and this was significantly under thirty thousand. So, right, finish second in yeah. in that list is not not terrible. Or nineteen thousand nine hundred again, but again, like the X Type man, people said customers felt that it was cheap for the brand it came from, and that's another thing we've talked about before: the perception of luxury and how important or not important the intangible idea of what, you know, a BMW or an Audi or what have you should be. So one of the big problems, and and I'll admit, I'm, I also think this is a big problem personally. It took nine seconds to get to 60 miles an hour. <laughs> so that's a long time for a BMW. Uh, well, yeah, for a BMW, that's a long time. I mean, other vehicles around that time, I mean, it's, it's still slow. It's not, uh, it's not fast. I think we've, we've talked about the sure. six second number before. Yeah. There's somebody in a diesel powered Volvo who's been trying to get to 60 miles per hour and they started when we started this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty, you know what? Later, there's going to be a car that, that comes up in this list uh-huh. that is just about that way. It started, <laughs> that one might have started long before we started this podcast. I, think I know what you're yeah. talking about. <laughs> All right. All right. So, um, yeah, okay. So it felt cheap. It was a lot of, you know, plasticky interior, terrible zero to 60 time really, or really slow zero to 60. Um, yeah, the, the best year for this in, uh, sales wise was 1996 when they sold around 7,000 vehicles. But right after that, the sales collapsed, and uh, they just couldn't keep up with it. And here's a funny line that I like at the very end of this one. Uh, this is written by Pearlie Huffman from uh, – John Pearlie Huffman, I should say, uh, from Car and Driver. 
He says that if the car was withdrawn from the market after the 1998 model year, the 318Ti looked like two-thirds of a BMW, and two-thirds is just not enough. <laughs> two-thir- that's a good way to describe it, a two-third yeah. BMW. And, uh, yeah, I think he's right. It just didn't, this wasn't up to snuff. But here's, here's another one that, um, this one is surprising. Oh, before we do this one, I just want to say, I think one of the best comparisons to this comes from the world of soda. My friend, do you remember something called, uh, New Coke, Coke 2? <laughs> yes, I do. I do remember that. And we had a really, we had an oddly s- surreal conversation about that. <laughs> Under some different circumstances, uh, that led to the, uh, an interesting thing about the Pepsi Coke Wars. But, so, it was called Coke too, right? Is that what I, it was I called? I think it was New Coke, yeah. New Coke? New okay. Coke, yeah. Well, we were having a discussion about, uh, Pepsi Clear and, you know, mm-hmm. all that other stuff. Yeah. About Tab Clear? I don't know yeah. if many people know about Tab Clear. No, not, I didn't know until you hipped, yeah. hipped us to it. Weird. You're right. It's unofficially, it was called, uh, New Coke. Uh, but it was officially renamed Coke 2, so we were both right. The problem with it was tried to fix something that wasn't broken and in the process uh, did enormous damage to their company. Okay. You think – okay, but 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 you got to admit that this one that we're going to get to right now, mm-hmm. this one did work out well in the end for them. It did work out well in the end. It but is not – it is a Coke 2 origin story, but not a Coke 2 ending. Initial failure. Mm-hmm. Later success. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ford Mustang 2. Yeah, that's right. Now, okay, so this one, you know, been prior to this in, in the mid to late 1960s and early 1970s, Mustang had a pretty good reputation. I mean, it was a strong oh, yeah. vehicle. It was, uh, you know, something that they, as this article says, uh, it was a brash go-getter for the young at heart. And I, I agree. I mean, they're strong vehicles and they had great design. And It was uh, a dream to own one. Yeah. It's like the American dream to Hop in the Mustang with your sweetie, drive across uh, the countryside. Yeah, we can't deny that that was a fantastic car, really. Racing. Yeah, a lot. And they had, at this point, they had many different body styles. And mm-hmm. uh, um, in 1973, I think it was introduced in 1973 as a 74 model year. They came out with this this Mustang II, which was, um, I don't know, I, um, I don't know how to describe this, Ben. It was a, it was a. Uh, a toned down version of the Mustang. It was a, uh, an economy version of the Mustang, maybe. That's a better way to put it. Uh huh. And they, they eventually got around, well, let's see, they, they put a couple of different engines in this thing, and, and I think everybody can kind of picture what a Mustang 2 looks like in their, their mind's eye. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe the best way to describe this, Ben, is that mm-hmm. it, I guess there's a, there are two body styles, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a hatchback, there's a coupe. Okay, so, uh, very small vehicles, as you can imagine. I, I, again, I think everybody can picture these. Yeah. Uh, they had, uh, a, a couple of different engines, three different engines over the lifespan of this whole thing. They had uh, 140 cubic inch inline four. They had a 171 cubic inch V6. And then they went up to a 302 V8, which sounds really impressive. You know, that they've got these, yeah. you know, these, uh, these uh, big V8, really. It's a, it's a five liter V8. Uh, the problem was it never topped 140 horsepower. Which is weird, right? Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it just wasn't tuned to the point where mm-hmm. it wasn't tuned like the later the, the Fox body Mustangs ended up with, you know, back in the late seventies, early eighties. Right. Um, and Ford didn't help the situation. <laughs> yeah, so they, they had these appearance packages, you know, of course it's got a, a 302 V8 and it sounds impressive and everything. And but they had these, these Cobra two and then King Cobra appearance packages, uh, for, the the end i guess of its of its production mm-hmm. um the the good thing about this whole thing um is that it was of course a more fuel efficient mustang than uh than the previous mustangs and so it worked out 
I'm going to say primarily because of the timing. And, you know, also fuel efficiency, that was part of why that 302 didn't, you know, get yeah. above 140 horsepower. For it's sure. tuned for, uh, you know, uh, for, for, for mileage, economy, I guess. Yeah, yeah for economy. And, and you're right, Ben. It was it was a, just a, a matter of excellent timing uh, in the end. Oh, yeah, and in a really weird way. Okay, so in 1973, September, that's when we start seeing Mustang 2s in showrooms both uh, hatchback and coupe. And then in October of 73, the very next month, what would become known as the oil crisis begins. And then when it really kicks in and there's what's called the Arab oil embargo, uh, just weeks after that, the 1974 uh, production year Mustangs come out. And then, of course, you know what I mean? If you're in a situation where not only is gas super expensive, but sometimes you just can't find any, then you want something, you're going to trend towards something with more fuel economy versus performance. And we know that at this point, a lot of American manufacturers were still producing those, those land yachts, the big barges that were on uh, yeah. with giant V8s, uh, very inefficient and uh, and just huge. Um, but here was Ford with the, the right car at the right time, and they sold a pile of them. They sold 300,000 units in the 1974 model year debut, which is big, mm-hmm. and more than 1 million units by the time it was finally replaced by the Fox Body Mustang in 1979. So, <laughs> as they say here, this is another funny line from Andrew Wendler. He says, what the Milk Toast Mustang 2 lacked in raw swagger, it made up for in a sort of perverse practicality. <laughs> Just the thing for maintaining a mellow buzz in an uncertain world. And he said, let's hope that things never get this desperate ever again. So <laughs> funny way, you know, they always put a little spin on it at the end. You know, like, uh, like yeah. well, what it lacked in this, it made up for with that. And, uh, it, honestly, like, I think it's a decent little car. I feel like, I feel like my grandfather owned one of those. And I want to say it was like a Cobra version with a, a performance, um, appearance package rather. Ouch. Um, yeah. And I, it I, just feels like an exercise in irony. I, I know that it was a used vehicle when he had it and I doubt he had it very long. And my aunt liked to, uh, like to crash cars. So maybe that's what happened to that one. I, I was really, really young when uh, that would have happened. So, um, I don't know. Anyway, so let's move on to the next one, which is a 1990s Lotus Elan. Now, putting a Lotus on a black sheep list, that's that's tough to begin with. It's a big move, but those of you out there who know what we're talking about, probably several of you are going, oh, yep. Yeah, it's like the Lotus you forgot about, really. All right, Ben. So aside from the company's experiments with, uh, you know, like four-wheel drive and some of their, their racing vehicles that uh-huh. they tried, uh, they had never routed power to the front wheels you know, prior to this, and Ever since this vehicle, they've never done it again. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. 
Papertarians know that it's the smart choice too, because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Which sounds a lot like a lesson learned, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, you know, if you can picture this car, I mean, maybe take a look at it. If you're near a computer or near your phone, you can uh, you can check it out. Uh, but most people can probably picture what this looked like. It's a small two-seat uh, two seat convertible. It had decent lines. It wasn't a terrible-looking vehicle. I've seen a few of these on the road in person uh, a long time ago. I haven't seen one in the in the past, or I'm uh-huh. sorry, in the recent past. Um, but it wasn't a bad-looking vehicle. The problem was... Um, it only had it had these relatively small engines. It had a, a 130 horsepower naturally aspirated engine or a 160 horsepower turbocharged version, and you know it's a small vehicle, so that's not terrible. Right. Um, but it was, a, it was an Isuzu engine that was placed inside this thing by uh, the company that then owned Lotus, and this will blow a lot of people's minds: General Motors. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I mean, if you don't really know a lot about General Motors history or, or mm-hmm. Chrysler history or whatever, you look back to some of the brands that they've acquired and then sold throughout the years. And of course, we talked about Ford and, and Jaguar and uh, Chrysler. There's Lamborghini. Um, you know, there's there's some surprises in a lot of big manufacturers' histories because they pick up these smaller brands along the way and then sell them off for a profit later or, you know, sometimes at a loss. But maybe they do it just for um, some badging, you know, like yeah. to say... Here's a, here's a suspension from Lotus that we're going to throw under this vehicle. And that's exactly what, um, Isuzu did later, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, uh, the handling package. What did it say? Handling by Lotus, I think. The badges that they put on impulses. Yeah. The Isuzu yeah, impulse. Something like that. Yeah. And just to be, just to be clear, uh, for Lotus fans, yeah, we are, we are aware about the difference between the original, uh, Elan, like the Type 26, uh, when we're specifically talking about the type M100 from 89 to 1995. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we didn't designate it with the M100 Elan, which yeah. we probably should have ahead of time. But, um, this is the car that later went on, Kia, uh, bought the design and then produced its own version until 1999. So those, those four years after it was owned by General Motors, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Lotus owned by General Motors, uh, Kia picked it up and, uh, and, Made their own version for a few, a few years, but it just kind of died out. Nothing really came of it after that. Yeah, you know, they did, this is just a side note, but there was a chance for a new Lotus Elan to uh, come out in 2013. It was announced at the 2010 Paris Motor Show, 
but it was canceled before it even entered production. Hmm, that's really strange. I, I wonder what happened there, but uh, I guess that's a story for another show, maybe. Speaking of wondering what happened, next on the list is the Ferrari 400i. I gotta tell you, I don't, I, I don't quite understand this, but, um, Maybe we'll piece it together as we go through here, because the the uh, the author of this one, Kirk Seaman, mm-hmm. uh, gives three reasons why he thinks that this Ferrari should be on the black sheep list. Now, um, it's it's a V12 Ferrari. It's a four. It's the 400i. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know why a V12 Ferrari ends up on this black sheep list. I can think of another one, the the Mondial, which <laughs> maybe deserves to be on this list, but <laughs> is not. So okay, um, here only two of his criticisms really apply. Okay. Uh, and it, we will leave it to you to figure out which ones we're talking about. First, he says, it was the first Ferrari with an automatic trans. So uh, initially, it was a Borg Warner three-speed, later GM's Turbo Hydromatic 400. Second, it was never officially imported to the U.S. So any examples that did make it here as gray markets may have undergone less than stellar modifications to comply with federal mission safety regulations. That's that's kind of stretching it, I think. I don't know. I kind of buy this one because you, you, have, to, one? you have to add bumpers and all kinds of and lights and uh, you know there's a bunch of different stuff that you have to add to it that yeah. make the appearance different. I'm not sure so much about uh, you know fuel fuel economy standards or whatever they had to meet. Right. I'm not sure or what performance you have to do. other than I guess adding weight. Yeah, with we, remember, safety stuff. You remember our gray market uh, our, our gray market podcast? That was yeah. pretty interesting with uh, some of the if I do say so myself some of the things <laughs> that. Uh, Consumers had to add after the fact in order to make them compliant. Oh yeah, uh, with you know whatever country they were trying to import them in- into. Oh um, uh, wait, the third objection though. Oh yeah, is this the serious one? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Third and perhaps most damning of all, Tom Cruise piloted one in the opening credits of the 1988 film Rain Man. Ah, discredits it right there. Discredits. Uh, uh, you know what? I gotta say, I. I, I don't think Rain Man was that bad of a movie. I agree. You know? I agree. I, I think it's just funny to poke fun at, fun at but Tom the, Cruise and what he does. The thing about the automatic transmission for someone who's a Ferrari purist, I totally get. Yeah, I understand that too. The engine in this vehicle wasn't all that bad, really. I mean, it was a, it was a 4.8 liter V12 engine, as we said before. Um, it had 310 horsepower and 289 pound feet of torque, which isn't terrible. It's not, it's not awful, but I guess it's a Ferrari. Maybe that's, you know, not acceptable. Right. Um, and again, a V12, you might expect a little bit more out of it than that, but look, look at the day that it was, uh, it was produced. Um, the other thing is that, um, it had a high, uh, RPM level for the red line. It was, uh, it was 6,500. So it was a high revving V12. So that's, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that they, I guess this means the car and driver tested this back in the day and it was with a manually equipped 400i in uh, December of 1982 and it hit zero, uh, hit 60 miles per hour in 7.1 seconds, which uh, sounds a little bit slow now, I guess, you know, for V12 Ferrari, seven seconds, zero to 60. Yeah. But, um, again, this thing weighed 4,350 pounds as well. So it was a heavy vehicle. Um, I don't know. In the end, this author even says like, there's really no such thing as a bad V12 Ferrari. Um, it's just that it, it did what it was supposed to do well. It's the problem was it was a four seat Ferrari with an automatic transmission. And that's what right. a lot of people just can't get over. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the purists, the people that, you know, come to Ferrari meets maybe, uh, would say, yeah, you can, you can join us, but maybe better just set up back in the corner somewhere. <laughs> and I think that's the way it is with, uh, you know, a lot of these vehicles. You know, when we talk about it, it's that, you know, when they go to the shows or the, the club events, 
Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that are kind of pushed off to the side. You know, like maybe it's not really a true um, example of the mark. So I think that's I think that's a, a good point, because if you go to I don't know why I'm making bad uh, food analogies, but here's another one. If you go to a pizza place and, you know, they say, well, today we're serving uh, whatever the opposite of pizza is salad. Yeah. Today we're serving salad and it's a great salad, but, or today we're serving sushi and it's, it's good sushi, but it's not what a pizza place is supposed to make. <laughs> it's a disappointment in some way. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. I get it. And you know, I, I understand that, you know, people are still proud of their vehicle. It, what, oh, here's another example. Uh, kit car owners, you know, that have a kit car version of a, uh, a desired mark of some kind, you know, whatever it would be a luxury mark or a sports car mark. Yeah. But, um, they're often shunned by people that are the ones that own the true thing, the real deal. And I, I don't quite understand that. It's like it's, you know, the, the, the flattery is the, uh, what's the, that saying? Flattery is the greatest form of, uh, oh, uh, uh, uh yeah. Well, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. That, that's it. Man, I had that totally backwards. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was confused. I'm, I was like, flattery is the greatest form of imitation. I am, I am terrible at those things, but, uh, but you get the point anyways, is what right. I'm saying. Like, you think that they would have some kind of respect for it. You know, like you're, you're bringing out uh, what could be in some way an improved version of what they have. And, okay. uh, you know, Show some respect for that, I guess. But uh, you shouldn't show any respect for the next vehicle on this list, and that is the Cadillac Cimarron. And it's uh, one that we've talked about in the past. Uh, or Cimarron know, by Cadillac. When I saw this on on the list, I wanted to have have you do this one entirely because I think it's going to be very fun. All right. So you're a nice guy. You're not a bad person. Well, thank you. Uh What's, what's the deal with this? I, you know, I had a friend in <laughs> high school that his, his father owned one of these, and the thing was just awful. It was just a, a terrible vehicle. It never ran well. Um, <laughs> he, he knew it wasn't a great car, but it was something to get him to and from work every day. And uh, for a while, until it started to run on three cylinders, then on two cylinders. Holy smokes. Yeah, it, it was terrible. It was a bad, bad vehicle. So uh, a lot of people called it the Cavalier Lack, you know, because it was a rebadged Cavalier, right. really. And the reason that this all came about, and the, this uh, article, again, clears this up. Andrew Wendler is the author here. Um, he says this is why GM did it. They were concerned that European models like the Mercedes-Benz 190 were, were going to uh, kind of sew up this burgeoning luxury compact segment before it really even started. So GM grabs its version or, you know, whatever it had available, um, I guess on its small car, plat- small car platform, and then started to add what he calls glitz to the model. Yeah. And that's all they did, really. They just took a Cavalier and they just kind of, uh, just kind of gussied it up a bit. You know, mm. throw on some, put some lipstick on that thing, right? That's what they did. <laughs> and um, so here's the thing. It's the first Caddy in more than half a century that was powered by a four-cylinder engine. And it had the same 1.8 inline four-cylinder engine as the, the rest of General Motors' easily forgotten J-Car lineup, as he calls it, uh, which included the Pontiac J2000, the Buick Skyhawk, and the Oldsmobile Forenza. Oof. Remember those cars? Oof. Not many people do. That's, a, uh, that's the problem. The worst part is, you know, I'm a fan of Oldsmobiles. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, the thing is, like, it was just, it was really just poorly done all around. I mean, it just wasn't, well, and Cadillac didn't like it either. I mean, the brand didn't like it. It was right. just something that had it'd come down from above where they said, you know, we've got to compete in this market and here's how we're going to do it. So they tried, though. They, they made it, they tried to make it work. So they stuck it out for most of the 1980s and, you know, this thing didn't go away until uh, 1988. But they yeah. did eventually offer a V6 engine, which was, you know, 
I guess followed by uh, mostly an aesthetic overhaul as well, uh, you know, which kind of helped things a little bit, but not a lot. It still was, I mean, it's still, there's no way to get around it. When you see that car, you think it's a Cadillac with the, I'm sorry, it's a Cavalier with a Cadillac badge. Just no yeah. way around it. Yeah. And it persisted longer than it should have, as you said. And it gives us uh, an, an insight into how top-down decisions or mandates can be made in these gigantic organizations and keep and and keep going. I thought of another food analogy, but I'm not going to do it because you know what I just realized? What's that? I'm only doing these food analogies because I forgot to eat lunch. <laughs> and now everything is slowly <laughs> turning into food in front of me. <laughs> I get it. But, I get um, it. it happens. But, yeah, so the Cimarron, especially when uh, when it has such unreserved – unmitigated criticism from you that that goes pretty far in my book oh it's not just me it's it's pretty much across the board everybody so here's how here's how long this lasted at gm how how bad they or bad the sting was as this writer put it yeah he said so enduring was the sting of the cimarron that former cadillac product uh, director john howell kept a picture of the cimarron on his office wall that's right with a caption that read lest we forget that's that's it's going deep and he sounds like a smart guy it's a guy yeah well, i'm sure he is yeah i mean but it, it just goes to show you that badge engineering something in this way you know going above yeah. and beyond like this yeah um it, it just shouldn't be done really well because it tarnishes look man a car is a is a huge purchase we talk about this all the time car is a significant investment and that means that car buyers are for the most part smart Mm -hmm. and it's going to be tough to pull the wool over their eyes even if they're not car people just because they're spending that much money and like yeah do your research especially nowadays Mm, i just think i i i gotta say man i don't have as much sympathy for people who buy uh black sheep cars nowadays unless they're specifically for some reason weird reason collecting the older ones Mm -hmm. Because now it's pretty, it's way easier now to figure out if a car is a bad move. Well, see, I, I have to tell you that I think that there's some cars on this list that people still find collectible and desirable. People want some of these vehicles. In fact, one of the ones we're going to talk about next is one that, um, I, I feel falls into that category. I, yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think this one should be on the list, but like the Cadillac Cimarron, I, I could not see myself ever going through Craigslist, seeing one of those and deciding, yeah, that's, I'm going to make that move right now. It's going to meet Scott Benjamin, yeah. 2017. <laughs> Scott Cimarron Benjamin. Let me get on my PayPal account and make that de- deposit right now. Uh, uh, no way. But the next one, this one that we're going to talk about right here yeah. is one that I, I feel shouldn't be on the list, but again, Everybody's got a version of this, right? There's there's going to be a vehicle on every list that somebody disagrees with, and this happens to be one that I disagree with. It's the Porsche 914. Right, and we've talked about this on the show previously, the Porsche 914. So but if I recall correctly, we talked pretty favorably about it. Mm-hmm. The reason that they say this is a, a black sheep car is more that it's, an entry-level car that was cheaper on the manufacturing end. But 
unlike the Cimarron, for example, the Porsche 914 is not a bad car. No, no. See, here's the thing. You said you said it's cheaper. It's an entry-level vehicle. And what they were trying to do at the time was they were trying to build something that was cheaper than the 912, which was really a 911 with a 356 engine. Right. And Volkswagen also needed to replace its Carmen Ghia vehicle, which also we were also favorable favorable to that one, too. Uh, we both like the, the Carmen Ghia, I think. Um, what resulted, as they said, wasn't a failure, but the bodies that they built, you know, these, these 914 bodies that they came up with or that, that Carmen came up with really, um, were more expensive than they anticipated. So it made it a, a pricier version than the factory expected initially. They thought they were going to have a cheaper vehicle all around. Right. And it ended up being that, you know, they were still kind of expensive to build. And, and that was kind of the problem. So in Europe, these were released as the Volkswagen Porsche. In America, they were simply sold as Porsche automobiles. They had a four cylinder engine. Um, again, which was built, um, entirely Carmen, by, yeah, 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 by Carmen. And, uh, uh, the Volkswagen, well, they had the Volkswagen Type 4 engine, which was behind the seats, you know, a, a mid-engine. And six-cylinder models, models had a, what they called the weak sister variant of Porsche's two-liter flat six. And, um, those were assembled in Zuffenhausen, which was, uh, like, uh, I guess Porsche's factory in Stuttgart. And so it gets kind of this bad rap that it's got a lot of Volkswagen parts in it, but, you know, there's, there's that, undeniable connection between Porsche and Volkswagen anyways and you'll find part you'll find parts in the 914 that are stamped with VW logos yeah uh transmission i believe is one that's that's stamped like that um there's other things as well but the the, the parts that they they do share parts and they also differ in things as well so now while the rear suspension isn't shared with any other vehicle it's it's all unique uh, the front is pulled from the Porsche 911 the 5 speed transmission as we said you know has a VW emblem stamped on it um, but it's the same unit that was in the 1960s and early 1970s, 911s again. So right. uh, is that terrible? That's not anything really to be ashamed of. And there's another really good point the author implies here. When when people say, oh, the Porsche 914 isn't a Porsche, it's a Volkswagen. Well, where's the where's the line with that, right? Because the Boxster was built in Finland, you know, yeah. So and, I no, think that's a great point that he makes. That's a, that's a good one to to draw a comparison to because a lot of the Porsche purists, people that you know are, are brand, uh, well, they're excited about. It. They're brand loyalists, I guess, for Porsche. <laughs> um, they don't consider the Porsche Boxster to be a true Porsche, and right. it's kind of crazy. I mean, early on, I can kind of understand what they were saying. Like, oh, what are you doing? You're you're cheapening the brand by offering this entry level. Boxster, you know, way back when, I can't remember when the first Boxster was around, but um, I want to say it was like early 2000s, maybe late 90s even. Uh, but there were some people that, that kind of uh, gave that the cold shoulder. They didn't they didn't agree that that should be invited to, you know, the Porsche meets or the uh, be, be allowed to um, display, I guess, in the uh, in the auto shows with with the rest of the Porsches. But um, most people don't feel that way. It's still a Porsche <laughs> vehicle. It's still, you know, it's still got the brand heritage. It's still got everything that goes right. along with that. But one thing we should mention here too is that a lot of people don't know this that when the 914 program was you know still developing when it was happening uh Ferdinand Peach was in charge of the of the 914 program at the same time he was spearheading the development of the 917 program which uh you know the Porsche's racing effort right. the 917s are fantastic vehicles so he's doing the 914 and the 917 at the same time so i don't know a lot of people think that um all this involved, you know, like, the, um, you know, aside from like a, a corporate steering column being used on the four cylinder cars and a few under, you know, under dash wiring bits and pieces and things like that. Um, a lot of people think that 
this is actually more Porsche than Volkswagen anyways, so why the argument? What's, right. what's the... Like ifs. Yeah, exactly. I just don't... I'm, I'm with the author here on this one. I don't understand this one being on the list, but, um, I don't know. I could see, I could see how, you know, it goes back to, uh, the idea of what is a pure Porsche or what is a pure Ferrari and so on. And th- part way through now, we start to realize that the term black sheep isn't necessarily an insult or a pejorative. I'm totally using it that way most of the time, mm-hmm. just to be honest. Sure. Um, but, and most people do. Yeah. And most people do, but really maybe another more fair word would be an anomalous car. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great. You see me too. We'll laugh together. We'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, you're getting dangerously close to something I want to talk about later. Yeah. Yeah, right, so I how think about we this? might be on the same page. Let's uh, let's speed through these last few on the list here, and we'll get to some of the ones that I came up with on my own. Maybe we'll yeah. go, we'll we'll cover these next few in uh, in lesser detail. Yeah, and next up we have the Triumph Stag. Yeah, the Triumph. that's right, Triumph. <laughs> the Triumph Stag. All right, so ah, this is unfortunate, Ben, for the Triumph brand, and I think a lot of people think that this is what kind of. Um, I uh, kind of brought the demise of the brand eventually, which is uh, just a terrible thing to say, but uh, probably true. This was touted as a different kind of triumph. That was how it was uh, it was 
sold or, or initially marketed to the public. And the problem was it was, it was a different kind of triumph, but not in a good way because triumphs before that were considered, you know, good looking vehicles. The stag was not considered a good looking vehicle. It had poor design. Right. So the actual production, the actual production stags had, they were convertibles, but they were also built on a sedan chassis and they had a four seat layout. And there's this, um, there's this roll hoop that goes, uh, to the windshield header that makes it look more like an open top pickup truck. Yeah, that's a probably, that's a good way to say it. Um, it's, it's different. I mean, we've seen this kind of open hoop design, you know, sure. on, on other vehicles. I think, I can think of some Mustangs that have seen it on. Um, of course, a lot of vehicles use this in their, in their structural rigidity, uh, requirements. You know, they, they have to have it. Um, and this one required it. It needed it. It's just the way they integrated it into the design just doesn't work at all. I mean, you can put a roll bar on something and make it look way cooler than what this looks like. And mm-hmm. if, if you don't quite understand what we're talking about, you might have to just take a look at a, a Triumph Stag with the top down in order to understand exactly what we're talking about. But it is really weird. And as they call it, uh, um, Uglification of the Triumph brand, <laughs> right. which is a funny word, but um, the, the problem was that it, it wasn't really a true sports car because, it, first of all, it's a it's four uh, four seat, um, and they you know they did they did something right here. They, they kind of uh, the TR sixes had a familiar straight six engine, yeah. and they dumped that in favor of a newly developed V eight. But the problem was, and you'd think that'd be great, but the problem was the engine was just a disastrous mistake. It was, uh, it was, it was really unreliable. Um, it was a terrible product, even by, as, as the officer says, even right. by the grim standards of a 1970s British Leland product. So that says something. It's, it's, it must have leaked a lot if I had to guess. Probably had electrical problems if I know that product. And I think I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but they said this is something else too. Nearly three quarters of the stags were equipped with an automatic transmission because <laughs> they said, well, why else would they, what else would they do really? <laughs> Just to kind of top off this already bad product. So <laughs> it all adds up to a Triumph convertible that was a sad sack among open top Triumphs and a model that helped speed the brand's demise. And I think this author is right. I think Joe, uh, Lorio is right in, in this case. Tragic um, story, man. It, it is. It's not, it's not a pretty story. I mean, so the Triumph stag, um, you know, if only they could have built on, you know, the success of that brand prior to that, uh, it probably would have done well, but it just, uh, just tore it down. It was not a good decision on their part. So for this next one, you know, what I've been thinking about the entire time we've been prepping for this podcast is it, it also reminds me of like dog shows and breeds and people will say, well, that's, you know, like, yeah, you've got a nice dog, but it's not a German shepherd. Don't call it one. It's like it might be part shepherd, but it's not a pure German shepherd. So it might look like a shepherd, but it's not a shepherd. Got it. That kind of thing. And then, and then also it ties into people saying like, well, I know this is not a, a great car, but I just like these kind of cars, which like, and I don't want to offend anybody. I'm sure, I'm sure all of your animal family members are awesome, but pugs, dude. People love pugs or hate pugs. Well, that's a thing. It's a love-hate thing. Right? They're starkly divisive. And so this, this next one, I like, but, but 
I don't think it's very good at all. It's it's a terrible vehicle. Yeah, that's the thing. Like it looks like a really cool little car to, to get around town, in, doesn't it? Yeah. I the, mean, it's a it's a, a micro car, a mini car, really. It's a it's a Japanese vehicle. Well, let's let's. I I think we should just quote from the way they they introduce it. It sounds so good. Okay. America had the Model T. Germany had the Beetle, and Japan had the Subaru 360. The what? The Subaru 360. Yeah, a tiny, bubble-shaped, 993-pound runabout that never quite became an icon like the other two cars, mostly because it was absolutely, horrifically, dangerously awful. That's that's pretty strong words. Oh, man. You know, uh, a little bit of personal life stuff. I've got, I've been, uh, I've been talking to dating this girl recently and this is the kind of car that uh just in appearance she she would lose her mind over how cute she would think it is Mm -hmm. it's it's got a tiny tiny little bug-esque design it's got a um yeah it's got suicide doors it's got those suicide doors are like the winning feature for me but fender mirrors yeah fender mirrors uh it's it's i gotta tell you man i like it i i do like like, i like the way it looks but uh, but there's no way once we get into what we're going to talk about right now that you could ever have one on the road here. All right, it's less than ten feet long. It has a six foot wheelbase. It has a two stroke engine providing twenty five horsepower. Okay, I'm still with you because there are other microcars that you know have in that range of horsepower and they were fine to drive. Not really a problem. You could still get around town. You could still climb hills if you needed to because they were very lightweight. Very uh, I don't know. Still also uh, you know, good looking and designed like this one. Uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> it was also just cheap. It was cheaply made. Right. Yeah. Which is strange for a Subaru product when you, th- when you think back to it, right? Uh huh. Especially, uh, because it had, it, w- it was cheaply made. And this was something that the company acknowledged in their ad copy when it did go to st- go on sale in, uh, 1968. It had the, it had this line, or excuse me, 1968 in the U.S., it had this line, cheap and ugly does it. Cheap and ugly. It says it right there in the tagline, cheap and ugly. Now, would you buy a car that they call, that the manufacturer calls ugly? But you know what the thing is, looking back, I think it's nostalgia that makes us think this is this is a good-looking car. Because in 1968, this wouldn't look like a good car. You'd say, that is a cheap and ugly car. Yeah, you'd be like, it's I mean, piece of Yeah. Yeah, you got to look at it with uh, with those uh, uh, that set of glasses on, I guess. Right. You know, yeah. That, uh, you know, through those eyes. <laughs> Here's the just abysmal part of this, though. Right? Uh huh. All right. So, the Subaru 360 was such a pile that even Consumer Reports deemed it too slow in its April 1969 test, uh, calling it a rolling road hazard that would frustrate drivers behind them into a rash of wait into rash passing maneuvers. Um, indeed, the top speed was only 55 miles per hour, which isn't, okay, I can still, I'm still with it. If, if, if it's, if it's like a, the, a vehicle designed only for urban travel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. I, I get it. But I'm still with the, the 55 miles per hour thing. Cause there are a lot of, you know, previous generation vehicles that only topped out around 45 or 50. I see what you're saying. Okay. So that's, that's okay. But wait for it. But the 360 accelerated from zero to just 50 miles per hour. In 37 and a half seconds. <laughs> it took 37 and a half seconds. And, and that's in the, that's in the, uh, you know, um, uh, consumer reports test. That's just so bad. So this is like the company giving them the best version of their product and saying, you know, you can test this one and it's 37 and a half seconds to 50 miles per hour. And there's another stat here. 
that's unbelievable. If if they said if the 360 ever encountered a slower car, which I think would be unbelievably difficult to find, maybe a maybe a, a hay tractor or something on the road. If it ever encountered a slower car, passing acceleration from 30 to 50 miles per hour, so just that jump from 30 to 50 miles per hour, took more than half a minute. Can you believe that? That's a car that won't get out of its own way. I mean, that's that's, that's super, super slow. <laughs> so the author sums it up with the following. The 360 might be the cutest black sheep in this group, and at best it could serve as a delightfully retro golf cart in cabrio form. But whatever you do, Keep it off the road. <laughs> That's right. Now, the, <laughs> that uh, the Consumer Report review, by the way, the uh, the one where they tested it back in the night in 1969, yeah. they said this is a quote from that from that uh, review. It was a pleasure to squirm out of the Subaru, slam the door, and walk away. <laughs> Can you believe that? What a, what a review of that vehicle! But it does look good. It'd be cool to have it in your garage, but you know, maybe drive it around the neighborhood, something like that. Yeah, That's about it. That's about it. <laughs> It's, I, I'm, I wonder if Jay Leno has one. Uh, he might just be, just, just to be funny. He has so be, many. He might have one and not know he has it. He might. Yeah. It might be like, it might be parked underneath some other vehicle. It's <laughs> right? so small. That's true. And I love small cars. I mean, obviously I think I like, I like yeah. that one. Yeah. The way that one looks. I just wish it was a little better performer. All right. So we have not done what we promised and, uh, and sped through these last oh, ones. Yeah, so okay, let's, let's do it. Let's do it quick. And here's one that is a specific one, which a lot of people will raise their eyebrows to. It's a Dodge Shelby Lancer. Now this is coming off of some, not terrible price. Well, okay, two things. Coming off some fantastic products, you know, the cars of the 1960s, like the 289 and 427 Cobras and, and Shelby Mustang G- GT350s and I guess the 500s later. But the thing is, um, in the 1980s, Shelby kind of expanded his efforts on these Chrysler products, which were also decent. The Dodge Omni, the sure. Charger GLHS, the uh, Dakota pickup even. Some of those that were, were actually credible and they had performance numbers that were decent for the day. Not, I mean, I, again, qualified with for the day, but they were decent products. There's one in particular that was not good. And this was the four door midsize 1987 Dodge Shelby Lancer. And they call it an absolute embarrassment. So it uses the same, same engine as the Omni GLHS, uh, 170 horsepower, 2.2 liter turbo, four cylinder. But here's the thing. It weighed almost 400 pounds more. So it would go from zero to 60 in 7.2 seconds. Yeah. And, and half of them were even slower than that because they had an automatic three speed that got a uh, weaker version of the turbo. Oh yeah. And in addition to that, Ben, uh, there was a premium price tag attached. This one was $5,000 more than the previous model years, you know, the, the, the Omni, I guess. And the, we can, Shelbyized Omni. We can only imagine their rationale. Like you see it, right guys? They said, well, if people are paying more for a car, they want to spend more time in it. So let's make sure the acceleration is slower. <laughs> That's <laughs> awful. All right. So this, this one car in particular was, you know, the, the problem. Again, it's the 1987. Dodge Shelby Lancer, the, the four-door version. Yeah. And they say that, you know, the rarity of this vehicle, because there weren't really uh, many of these built. In fact, fewer of these were built than any other Shelby-produced special editions. They say the rarity has no co- uh, correlation to collectability. So if you do see one out there, it's not like it's it's going to be worth more in any way. It's it's probably worth worth less uh, because they're – well, typically they're going to be in bad shape anyways because of the, uh, the era that they were built and the quality with which they were built. In fact um, – 
this one, I think, um, this is one of the ones that, one of the only ones, I guess, that never went through Carol Shelby's, uh, Whittier, California facility to, to make it a true Shelby. You know, like when they did the actual work on it, this is really just a Shelby in name only. So, um, it's just a terrible use of his name. I, I wonder what he thought about that vehicle. I mean, I'm sure I can, you know, imagine what he exclaimed oh, uh, when yeah. he realized how poor of a performer this one was. Oh, I'd love to dig into the behind the scenes yeah. story on that. Likely why there are very few produced. Up next, we've got the Maserati by Turbo. Yeah, introduced in 1993, and uh, this is when Maserati deci- first decided to build cars that were smaller, more affordable, and which is often a problem when you get into you know something that's normally a luxury mark or even a performance mark. Always like this. tough, man. Yeah, so this is the problem that uh, really they did this for almost a, like a generation of vehicles, and it almost killed the mark. Um, just about drove it right into the ground. Um, again, let's let's do this kind of quick. So. Um, they're saying that, you know, seeing one of these cars in, uh, in the wild is really pretty rare. Um, especially <laughs> as they put it, especially one moving under its own power. Yeah. Uh, that's how poor these vehicles were. And, uh, similar to the Triumph Stag, it almost put the company under, like it put the company in real danger. So it's a clone of the BMW three series, rear wheel drive, six cylinder engine, interesting trivia, uh, it had a twin turbocharged V6, first ever twin turbo in a production car. That's kind of cool. Sounds great. Yeah, sounds great on paper. I mean, a, a lot of stuff sounds great on paper. Sure. Um, it stalled when it was cold. It was laggy. It was sluggish. Still carbureted at this point, I think. Still carbureted, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it had a couple things going for it, though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I guess some people like the styling. Oh, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Not a lot of people like it. It was wedgy, of course. You know, the design was um, supposed to look like the BMW 3 Series, as you mentioned before. But it did have something that a lot of people liked in the inside, and that was, like, really puffy, leathery, leather, oh, yeah, leather yeah. upholstery, I should say. Um, what was that line? <laughs> they said it felt like relaxing into a catcher's mitt, <laughs> which is, it sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. um, I, I'm sure it has a very 80s look to it inside um, and outside I don't know. Again, it's a uh, divisive vehicle. I, I don't know if a lot of people uh, right. have, are kind of like wishy-washy about it. I think you're either one way or the other about this car. I mean, and they kept going, but they did pull out of the U.S. market just because people weren't buying it. Again, it's like, why do you – people will say if you're going to get a Maserati, get, you know, like the orthodox Maserati. Get Don't get the entry-level thing. This next one, oh man, an, an orthodox Maserati. I'm just pondering what that would be right now because I think everybody has one in their one in their head, like what Maserati right. should be. Yeah, and even now there's uh, there's some contention about what uh, what Maserati is doing with the, with the product. They're making uh, they're still making what they call an affordable Maserati. I think with the uh, the, yeah. the Ghibli, that's yeah. the one, right? Yeah. Strange name, um, and it, again. In quotation marks, affordable Maserati, I guess. <laughs> uh, anyways, there's, there's one right down the road for me. There's a, um, a Maserati dealership down the road for me. So I occasionally will get to hear those Maseratis that have the Ferrari V8 screaming down the road, which sounds That's so cool. unbelievable. It's really, really cool. So, um, I'm kind of a fan of that brand now. I, I wasn't so much in the last couple of years, but, um, yeah, something about it. It's just, it, I don't know. Maybe I'm giving a closer look now and I, I seem to appreciate them. So here's one that. Well, we've talked about it. Yeah, that uh, you're struggling for words. Yeah, and that's rare for me. It's the Aston Martin Signet. Aston Martin, as I'm sure you all know, built a mini car. They built a they built little. I don't. 
They built a tiny car. Yeah. Well, we talked about it in the past. I mean, we've, we've had, do we even a full episode on this or maybe it was another Black Sheep Cars episode or something? Or maybe it was just an Aston Martin episode. Oh, maybe. I can't remember exactly. But we do have, we do have an episode about it. Or nuts and bolts or something like that. But it has come up. I know we've talked about it at length, so maybe we don't need to do it here, but it's really essentially just a rebadged, uh, Toyota Scion IQ mini car. Which has an incredibly sumptuous and sumptuous interior, as the uh, the author describes here, and um, people thought it was I, a joke, Scott. <laughs> I know it was introduced in two thousand nine, so we likely talked about it very early in our podcast, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even high speed stuff days. Oh wow! Um, you know, apart from it having just this kind of, well, of course, it's got the the normal IQ engine, which is the ninety seven horsepower, one point three liter four cylinder engine, which has. I guess you can get it with a six-speed manual, which would be kind of fun to drive, I think. Sure. Um, or it also had a CVT, which I, I really don't like CVTs anyways to begin with. But um, that is a, a huge departure from the, the car, you know, these British cars that normally have, you know, a big muscular V8 or even a V12 engine. Uh, so it's a huge departure from what they are, they normally do in many ways. Fifty grand. Fifty thousand dollars. But you could up that if you wanted to. If you got, uh, there's, there's a different version of that. So uh, let's say that you wanted to get a special edition model, which yeah. came in at $70,000. And as, again, as this author points out, that one had throw pillows. Inside. Yeah. That was the limited edition, uh, trimmed by a, uh, fashion, a fashion house, uh, Colette, uh, from Paris. So they had silver paint, blue highlights, Sounds, uh, uh and, embossed and, leather. Well, those pillows. And those pillows. Yeah, that's uh, it's an additional $20,000 on top of your already $50,000 IQ. I guess they're marketing to a very specific demographic. But look, that's James Bond's car, man. Don't – I don't – Yeah. I have I have issues which are entirely subjective just because it's um, – just because growing up as a Bond fan, I was so used to – Aston Martin being something completely different. So maybe I am falling into a purist thing because look, man, we know, we know if we're being realistic that there's going to be a continued market for these kind of tiny cars, you know, uh, actual Mini Coopers, not the stretched out enlarged ones, smart cars and, and IQs like science things. Those, that kind of car design works very well for some people who live in a city but want to own a car, you know, in a in a very dense city, not like not like our city. Yeah, long commutes where you need something with really good mileage, you know, and you're only one person in the vehicle typically. Yeah. Uh, that that pays off, you know, in the end if you're if you're commuting long long distances. And, but I don't know how but, comfortable those would be over distance, you know. Well, that's true. I mean, no, I, I wouldn't take a road trip in one, I don't yeah. think. But, oh, no. Well, maybe I would. I love I love small cars. And I got to tell you, I'm I'm actually I, I kind of like the IQ look. I like the Toyota IQ look. They're Scion or whatever it's bad. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, in 2009 when these came out, we were kind of laughing at it, you know, saying that it was, it was kind of funny. And I think we, um, uh, we had mentioned, as a lot of people had, that you had to be a previous or, or current Aston Martin owner to buy one of these. And I don't think that's true. This author mentions here that you didn't have to be an Aston Martin owner to purchase one. So um, some confusion over that, I'm not sure. But they ended up selling a, a decent amount of these, really. They only built them for 18 months, mm-hmm. and they sold 800 of these Signets. 800. Yeah. they. De- I mean, they definitely had not bad. some kind of market. Yeah. yeah. Not, not bad at all. So anyways, it's, it's, I guess as, uh, you know, it, it just kind of 
jarring to see that Aston Martin badge on this tiny little vehicle, really. And I think that's what it all comes down to. For a lot of people, and of right. course, as you said, purists, and people that associate the brand with James Bond. It's- now, that's that's the end of our car and driver list, but it sounds like you've got a couple more you need to get off your chest here. Yeah, well, I do, and I know we're running kind of long, but uh, let's see if I can just maybe cram a couple of these in and, and let uh, let listeners and you kind of mull these over. Sure, sure. So, so yeah. comment as you feel okay. uh, see fit, but I'll go through them kind of quick. I'm going to go with the Ford Thunderbird. Not the, not the original Ford Thunderbird, of course, and not every Ford Thunderbird generation one through ten, but the 11th generation Ford Thunderbird, the one that they built between 2002 and 2005. Mm. And that was kind of the retro look. Remember the, um, uh, the throwback design? It didn't do so well for sales, uh, with Ford. They, 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 um, uh, let's see. They actually built 70,000 of them in that three year time span. Uh, but the sales just really weren't all that great. They didn't, they didn't ever really pick up. They, they dropped way off after the first year because I think this first year was the top sales year for them. Uh, the, the strange thing about this, Ben, that mm-hmm. I find really weird is that they're trying this retro thing with the Thunderbird. You know, they had previous versions of Thunderbirds prior to this that, that you know, sold well, but they had been updated all along, all along. They go back to the, you know, the original or a throwback to the original design. Um, sort of like what Ford did with the Mustang right around the same time, around 2005. The difference is the Mustang sold really well when they went with the retro look, but the, mm-hmm. this Thunderbird, for whatever reason, just didn't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it uh, black sheep, black sheep uh, status. status, yeah, and see if you agree with that. But uh, you still see a lot of them around. My uncle has one; and he loves it. Yeah, he loves that vehicle. I'm tempted to agree. I think it's a cool car. It's just I I just I mean it, it should get that status I think because it just never really caught on. Uh, the next one I'm gonna throw in here is the Pr- Plymouth Prowler. And, uh, I mean, polarizing styling, you know, some people really didn't like it. Some people loved it. Um, underpowered, of course, but I think that was kind of by design. They were trying out that V6 engine and, uh, you know, seeing what it would work oh, for. Oh, man. Shared across other platforms. But the problem was it actually, actually had decent horsepower for its era. It just didn't have enough torque. That was the problem. It just, it just didn't have enough for like off the line acceleration that people wanted from a vehicle that looked like that. Yeah, okay. Here's the thing. Plymouth Prowler gets a lot of flack, especially from me. Uh it is a goofy doofy looking thing. It Okay, wait, 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 wait. hear I'm me out. Shaking though. my head no. Hear me out though. Hear yeah, me out. Yeah. Because almost entire I think it could be redeemed if it was it's got I, I love the retro design of the bulk of the vehicle. I like the slow slung. There's something a little belly tank racer about it you know yeah but that front uh that that front end that all that all that business uh uh with the the way the headlights are and uh and the way they've got the front wheels working dude it it looks like somebody said oh we've got to design the rest of the the rest of the vehicle but it's friday and it's already 4 30 <laughs> okay so that's just i didn't get quite the uh the, the care or the attention that it should have received maybe before it go. was launched right that's what that's and, that's a good way to and, say and it. it did have but you know what here's the thing it was around for a while i mean it could have it could have gone through some redesigns it could have uh, well, initially, I mean, almost right away it received criticism because it didn't have V8. It didn't have that, uh, that torque that everybody wanted and the acceleration that everybody wanted. Um, but it was around from 1997 to 2001 as a Plymouth. And then when the Plymouth brand went away, Chrysler picked it up as a Chrysler badged vehicle from 2001 to 2002. And then they got rid of it. Um, it was produced as down in, uh, in Detroit right on the same as, or right next to the same assembly line as the Dodge Viper at the time. 
So yeah. you'd see, you know, that factory was unbelievable to see, uh, you know, vipers and, and prowlers coming off the line in the same building. It was really, it was an interesting place to visit. Um, but it, I, I kind of wish it had hung around. I kind of, you, know, you know, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of customizers got a hold of this vehicle and did some great things with them. You know, they, uh, they did stuff a V8 under there. They, they did, uh, make some of the changes to the front end, like you had mentioned, you know, made it a little more, uh, aesthetically pleasing. Um, but I, I don't think it was a terrible vehicle. And when I see one on the road now, which is really, really rare, uh, when I see one, it still turns my head. I mean, I still, I'm still kind of excited by seeing it, but I know that it's not something that I would ever really want to buy and put in my own garage. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's, Maybe that's why I'm giving it black sheep status. I think that, you know, it, it, again, like your opinion of it, I think that's a, that's an over, overlying opinion of a lot of people. Now, just to be, just to be fair, like, have you ever seen the front end? <laughs> I just, I thought, I thought that was half a sentence. I thought you were going to ask me like more. I feel like if but, you really look at it, <laughs> you know, I'm just kidding. now that I'm going to really look at it, I probably won't like it. All right. You know what? I'm going <laughs> to, there's a couple things here that I'm just going to buzz through yeah, real quick. Yeah, we're, we're way late, but, um, <laughs> All right, here's one that I, I think a lot of people will agree with this, but Pontiac Aztec. Oh yeah. Okay, people. Uh, oh yeah. Worldwide have you know uh, said they don't like the look of this vehicle, and you know a lot of people said, well, it's a great vehicle. You just have to get in it and drive it to understand it or to appreciate it. But I'm going to take this in another direction, also with the, with the Pontiac brand, even. All right. Uh, all right. So my question to you with the, with Pontiac Aztec is, was Pontiac at that time? even really producing a good product or were they already kind of like the black sheep brand of General Motors? But, you know, there's a couple things that, that I can argue against that already now that I'm thinking about it because I just saw two vehicles the other day, which which I oh, strongly approve of. What's that? <laughs> the uh, Pontiac G8s. I saw two of those on the road the same day, and I, it's kind of a rare sighting around here. But uh, that's a strong product, and that was on the drawing board, or they were building those just as the Pontiac brand went under. But – Around the time when the Aztec came out, mm-hmm. was Pontiac already kind of a brand on the outs? Was it producing a bad product anyway? And this is just, you know, the, maybe the most, uh, um, uh, the most publicized version of its bad, its bad products towards the end. I mean, aside from, you hmm. know, the, those yeah. couple of vehicles that are, that were there, like the, you know, again, you know, there's the, the, how about the Solstice? The Solstice was a pretty cool car, but I think that the G8 and the Solstice, you know, the Solstice Coupe especially, mm-hmm. not the convertible, but the, the, the one that they only made a few of because they, they had to cut production. But, um, I think, boy, I'm arguing both sides of this one, but yeah. they, so, <laughs> so <laughs> they had a couple strong products, but you got to remember that that's kind of what a brand does when it's in the death throes. You know, mm-hmm. they, they produce something just wildly outside of the box of what they had, had been doing in the past in order to try to generate sales. And maybe that's what the G8 and the Solstice and, you know, the, the cars that fall into that category go with. But again, was the Pontiac Aztec uh, that bad of a vehicle or was it the brand that was not great at the time? It was great on Breaking Bad. It was great on Breaking Bad. <laughs> but, uh, but it was great because it was kind of a bland, non- yes. non-specific vehicle. Yeah. It was pedestrian. It was a vehicle that looked like they had to make a compromise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what, uh, I have some thoughts, and I think maybe we have time to wrap up with some thoughts. Okay. All right. So when we earlier said a black sheep is not necessarily a bad thing, we just all use that phrase that way. It's more of an anomalous thing. We have, perhaps I did some false advertising in the beginning, although not on purpose, ladies and gentlemen, when I said we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. The Porsche 914 is a good car. 
uh, the Subaru 360 is a bad car. And this, this goes, we've run across the gamut here, but in the vast majority of cases we discussed today, I commend the car manufacturers because Look, one of the most difficult things in the world is to start a successful car company and run it because you have to have, you have to have so much luck, so much talent, so much timing. It's, it's really a perfect storm whenever one, uh, grows large enough to survive, right? And the way that these companies, even the, even the big three here in the U.S., the way these companies manage to survive after they've quote unquote made it is because they are continually improving and they're creating new things. And when you are creating new things, you are inevitably going to come out with some stuff that ends up at, you know, so disastrous that it's memorialized in a photograph in the exec's wall. And it says, lest we forget, Mm -hmm. you can't have, um, you can't have Mustangs without making Cimarron's, you know? As a car company, you can't have something as good, as iconic as a Mustang. You go through a couple of those other, you go through a couple Edsels to get to those type of things, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Different manufacturers, but I get your sure. point. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I totally yeah. understand. Uh, you know, I, in fact, I'm glad you said that because this, this brings me to my last point. I promise it's my last point. Uh, but I've kind of hinted at this throughout and it's kind of a different way to look at the black sheep thing, you know, because a lot of people look at the black sheep vehicles as the, uh, the outliers that are bad. Mm-hmm. As you just said, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you, of course, you do have to take some risks, and sometimes those risks hit, and sometimes they fail. And the ones that hit, I think, are also black sheep vehicles. So that, that's the idea yeah. is that you know, it's like um, you know, black sheep has, doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be kind of like the uh, like the. Like, I don't know, like that crazy wild relative that you got that's the black sheep of the family, but man, they're having a lot of fun. And there's nothing really bad about that person. It's just they're, they're different than everybody else, right? Yes. So I see a couple of vehicles in specific that, that I think are kind of, are black sheep vehicles that, uh, that, that are success. I mean, look at the Ford GT. That's mm-hmm. a great vehicle, but it's, it's also an outlier. Uh, Dodge Viper is another good example. You know, when, be, when they were first building the Dodge Viper, completely out of what they had done in the past. I mean, it was something brand new, all new, different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it, it took off. It was, it was a success, and it still is a success up until this year when it's going to go away. But uh, that was a long run for that vehicle. And, you know, they developed it and built it up along the way. It got better and better. Um, Acura NSX, that's another good one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's an outlier. I mean, sure, Acura produces great vehicles and Honda produces great vehicles, but the NSX is kind of like the, the top end of that of that product line. And... Or it was, I should say, and it's coming back again. But um, I don't know. I, I don't think it has to be a negative thing. And I'm sure there's a, a million other examples like this out there that I just can't come up with off the top of my head. I wanted to say uh, Nissan GTR, but that's been around a long time, mm-hmm. uh, so I wouldn't really call that one one. But maybe when they first started doing it, of course, you know, the Godzilla cars. Uh, maybe that is uh, those were outliers. Yeah. And still, you know, huge success, and people still want those vehicles, even the, even the old ones. Um, I, I just don't think it has to be a negative term, the black sheep of the uh, automotive family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Scott, maybe maybe you are right. Uh, I want to throw this to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure, I'm convinced that as you listen to this episode, we ran up against at least one car that someone was going, what? No, that's great. That's the best car. And I'm sure there are many, many more cars uh, that, 
you listeners may have thought, oh, these have to be on the black sheep list. These are the these are black sheep number one in my book. Uh, let us know about them. You know, yeah, you know what? You're lucky right now, Ben, because I have another page of notes that I can't find, but it has <laughs> a list of eagles that I felt shouldn't be on another list I found. Oh, that's a shame, uh, you know, man. What, what is this? This has been like a two-hour podcast. No or way. It's crazy. Yeah, it's like uh, I think we're entering our maybe it's like an endurance podcast. <laughs> oh, let's just keep going. Hey, you want to just <laughs> let's go into what we we're going to do next week. <laughs> Might, might as well, I guess. We'll, yeah. make, it, we'll make it a two-week podcast. <laughs> we'll just All in one. podcast until the next until the next podcast releases. Uh, but to do that, we're going to do it off air. Uh, that's the only that's the only technical glitch there. So we are gonna we are going to head out now. But we would love to hear from you. Let us know on Facebook and Twitter where we are Car Stuff HSW. Uh, and also, you can check out our earlier podcast. Although, Scott, my friend, I'm hesitant to send people to the very, very early high-speed stuff. Yeah, it's a little, uh, as we say, it's sometimes a little rough to listen to those early episodes. Be be kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, had, we had a lot of learning to do. But you can find those episodes and every one we've ever done on our website, carstuffshow.com. And if you want to write to us, Directly send us pictures of a project car, suggest a topic for an upcoming show, or just say, hey, I own a Subaru 360. <laughs> for some reason, I like it. Uh, sure, we'll hear you out. Our address is carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com.